You are listening to us, Unscripted Stories, brought to you by Northwestern University's Multicultural Student Affairs. We are recording at the traditional homelands of the people of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Adawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk Nations. Welcome everyone, my name is Saeed, and today we are joined by Upasana Bharath and Chloe Wong. Hi, my name is Upasana Barth. I'm the graduate assistant at Multicultural Student Affairs at Northwestern University. Hi, I'm Chloe Wong, and I'm a third-year undergraduate studying anthropology, global health, and Asian American studies at Northwestern University. So today, Chloe and I are actually starting the first episode of four for the APITA Heritage Month series that will be a part of the Unscripted um, podcast And I'm really excited to have her here today. Yeah, I'm excited to do this with you, Upasna. So today is, today's episode is a little different than the past unscripted episodes because Chloe and I have decided to talk about Mitski's album, Puberty 2, especially one or two specific songs and relate those back to stories or memories or just things about our identity um, that the album has really sparked or highlighted for us so I was gonna ask you Chloe what was the music you listened to growing up growing up um I think I listened to a lot of it was a mix between like generic like American pop music and a lot of like Chinese mando pop who I guess inspired your taste in music or what you listened to yeah, um, I think American songs-wise, I listened to like very conventional like top 50 chart things, and I think part of it was definitely, it was very much molded by what my peers listened to, and I kind of, I definitely wanted to like fit in and like understand what was happening with like the inside jokes and like the lyrics, etc. Um, so in a way, I was definitely trying to like catch up to them. So I don't think I really formed a music taste of my own really until like later years of high school. What I guess was your branching out? Like what were the first bands that you listened to where you're like, this is definitely not what's on the radio, but I actually like it. Probably like Black Sabbath. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Um, Because I was like, wow, this is really cool. I was reading this like biography on Ozzy Osbourne and I was like hmm I didn't actually listen to this so I like listened and I was like wow this is interesting and this is definitely not like on the radio I think part of it was also growing up um, my family didn't have like a laptop or like a desktop at home but we had this clock that had a radio function on it so I would turn it on to listen to music and like all the music that came out were obviously from like Z100 like top radio channel pop songs so that was kind of just what was in my life what so when how did you hear about Mitski and when probably around like freshman year of college but I listened to a lot of Mitski my sophomore fall when I was abroad in Paris I think part of it was I was kind of lonely a lot of the time just like being in a new place I spent a lot of time commuting And there's this one line that I used to listen to so much. It was like, if you're going, like, take the train. Um, And I would, like, listen to it in, like, the Paris Metro. And I just kind of, like, 
be one person walking along. Um, and I would just like sit on the train, like past my stop, just on the line, just like listening to Mitski to like kind of waste time away. Was Mitski the first Asian American artist you ever listened to or heard of? I mean, I listened to Far East Movement. Nice. <laughs> that counts. I think yeah. that counts. I think it counts too. Yeah. But like, I guess why I'm asking is because Mitski kind of made a mark and carved out a space in mm -hmm. rock music that we yeah. hadn't ever really seen before, especially like an Asian American woman. I have to go back in time a little bit. So I used to write for this magazine called Rookie. And Mitski actually used to read Rookie, and so she had read some of my pieces, and then she, like, followed me on Twitter, and then I deactivated my Twitter, and and she blew up, which is kind of, which, yeah, kind of sucks. I guess the first time I ever heard Mitski was because of that. She'd, like, we had followed each other on Twitter, and then I heard she was releasing music. This is back when I lived in Memphis. She would come and perform, and I had a friend named Serena who was Japanese-American, and she was telling me about how listening to Mitski's music made her feel seen. Um, not just in terms of representation, but in terms of like what Mitski was singing about. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the genre that she was a part of, like rock music. And apparently Mitski had grown up, her dad listened to a lot of like American folk music and her mom listened to like only Japanese pop. Um, and strangely enough, like she still got inspired to listen to more rock music. I feel like I don't know, like, where that could have happened from. But I feel, like, if anything, I feel like I do hear, like, some parts of, like, Japanese pop. Like, I'm sure there was some influence mm. in there. And, like, maybe it was just, like, her upbringing herself that just kind of created this individual style. But also it might have something to do with just, like, something not conventional, per se, or, like, not necessarily expected of... Um, a typical Asian American. What were your again? What are what are your thoughts on um, puberty too? In terms of I guess like a PETA identity or what Mitski represents, and also specifically your best American girl, which is like mm -hmm. I believe her most popular song on the album. Mm -hmm. Oh, is that the one? Is happy not really at happy is? Oh, I could oh, be I don't so know. wrong. Maybe. I feel like it is. <laughs> It is your best American girl, but I I feel like super partial. Yeah, to happy. Why do you feel super partial to happy? Have you ever seen the music video? Mm -mm, I haven't. No. Oh, it's kind of revolutionary. So, <laughs> essentially, it's um, this um, Asian woman who is living in kind of like a mid twentieth century America with her white husband. Um, so all things are supposed to be happy. They're kind of living this typical in a way, like, picture-perfect life. But essentially what happens is her, um, the wife starts finding, like, bits of, like, blonde hair on, like, certain things and, like, little things that hint to um, that her husband is essentially having an affair and, like, particularly with, like, white women. Um, <laughs> so, like, that's kind of what the initial unfolding is um and then by the end of it so one day her she finally like goes down to the basement to see what her husband is up to and what she finds is that her husband has actually been killing all of these white women and stealing their belongings to give to the wife as presents 
So the, so the things that she's been finding as like evidence of her husband having an affair are actually just like like bracelets and like purses mm. or things that she, he's stolen from them to give to re-gift to her. So there's like this huge mm. plot twist because initially you see this and you're like, oh, of course, like the white man chooses the white woman over Asian wife. Um, and then it kind of just all plot twist <laughs> like complete 360 i think i'm spoiling this for everyone no, you should definitely watch the music video yeah saeed had such a visceral reaction their jaw just dropped i really have no words everyone i'm just <laughs> reacting <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's such a good example though of like how mitski's music and influence makes us think about our identity and mm-hmm. think about circumstances where it comes to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause when I, when I heard your best American girl, like the first thing I thought about was like an interracial relationship mm-hmm. um, between like a white person and an Asian American person. Mm-hmm. And that song just made me think about how like growing up, I would always watch movies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the movies I watched a lot was the princess diaries and that would be so good. I love it. Um, and I always, like, on top of that, too, like, I would watch, like, uh, my mom never let me watch TV very often. So if I wanted to watch TV, it would be, like, at my dad's house when she wasn't around. Um, because I grew up with divorced parents. And I would always see that, like, it would always be, like, white couples together. Mm-hmm. So I thought, like, that was the default. Like, I had to date a white person. And yet I had... I felt like I was unattractive or wasn't desirable, like two white people. And so at the same time, even if I was, there was a question of like, am I being exoticized or like, could we ever really make a relationship work? Because Mm -hmm. the way I was raised and the way you were raised are so different. Mm -hmm. Um, What will my experience be at dinner parties with your family? What will your experience be at dinner parties with my family? Um, so yeah, I thought I, that's kind of what that album did for me, especially Your Best American Girl. But I, now I have to watch Happy because I feel mm-hmm. like that's going to make me rethink. I don't know, like, what is your opinion on that, on what that music video was showing us? I think I had a lot of thoughts, for, like kind of just the original conventional story of it in a way, but also um, like kind of the play on racial identity in the sense of like what is desirable and what does it mean to like, reclaim your heritage in a way um if you do choose to like be in a relationship with someone who is not the same like racial slash ethnic identity as you and like how quote quote like revolutionary is it to like reclaim that identity or like in what ways can you do it in real life like as you were saying like if you like if I were to be in a relationship with like a white person like I don't like that wouldn't sit well with like anyone in my family I don't think Um, but it's also like, I feel like when you make the decision to be with someone who is like a separate racial and ethnic identity, um, I feel like in college in a way dating is like, you're like testing the waters, you're like seeing what's Mm. important to you within a relationship and like what you value in a partner. But when it gets to the point of like potentially marriage and like, then it becomes like, it's not just a relationship between like you and that other person whoever your partner may be it's a relationship between like your families it's a matter of like customs and traditions and language barriers and difference in salient identities that certain individuals might never be able to understand simply because of your upbringing 
like for me, my socioeconomic status is like a very salient identity of mine. Like I'm a first generation low income student and I don't like I think that's something that certain students on this campus or even like within my current friend circles will simply never be able to understand. And how do you even go about reconciling that mm. in a partner? Do you think that your socioeconomic background as a salient identity is even more salient when you're around other Asian Americans at Northwestern? Oh, definitely. I think upbringing-wise, like, in New York City, I think there were a lot of Chinese Americans within my, my friend circles and within my high school especially. But it was always, like, we were all of a similar kind of first or second generation immigrant background. A lot of our parents um, immigrated, like, during their adulthood and, like, never really got like a college education and kind of just worked really hard. We're very um, faithful followers, I suppose, of the American dream. And I think coming to Northwestern has exposed me to like a different type of Chinese American, like people who might be like third, fourth gen, people who have roots in the U.S. beyond like the immigrant community they came to, um, people whose parents have like college or even like graduate PhD educations. Um, and that's there's nothing like wrong with that per se it's just like we have very different experiences of what it means to be like a Chinese American and like different inheritances Mm -hmm. in a way of our heritage and like potential trauma Mm -hmm. yeah what do you think musicians like Mitski do for the Asian American community or like why do you think it's so important and why is it? Why do we get such a visceral feeling mm-hmm. um, when we listen to her music? That's like three questions in <laughs> one. <laughs> I think, in a way, um, like I guess similar to like maybe like I don't identify. I'm like Chinese American, not Japanese American, but I feel like the stories and the emotions that Mitski evokes of just this sense of like lonely. Asian American and like coping with so many like not just like identity politics but also like relationships and love um I think those emotions are really strong in her music and in a way like does make me feel like my emotions are being seen like even the ones that I didn't necessarily know existed just like as an Asian American like walking through this world um and I think that's why a lot of people like resonate um, I know this conversation is about Mitski, but I like went to a Japanese breakfast concert alone and I was just standing there, but I didn't feel alone at mm. all because like she was there and she was like singing and like doing her thing. And it just made me feel like I was being seen and I was being regarded as like an important perspective that she was singing like for her and her band, but also for all of us in a way. Mm hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think that's similar to how I feel about Mitski as well. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, For those of you listening who don't know, Japanese Breakfast is the stage name for Michelle Zahner, who is a Korean-American musician and writer. Um, She's written a couple pieces for The New Yorker. I know she wrote a really famous piece called Crying in H Mart. Uh, She wrote another piece, too, about how eating and cooking kimchi helped her cope with the loss of her mother. 
Um, and her music is just so, so awesome. Um, but yeah, I do think there's a sense of isolation that each one of us feel. I mean, obviously not, don't want to speak for the whole like a PETA experience, mm-hmm. um, as a monolithic one, cause it's not, but there is a sense of isolation and loneliness, um, that I know I feel too. Um, despite there being, you know, so many Desi Americans accessible (laughs) and to talk to, it just seems like, and I think it's because each of our experiences are so, so nuanced. It's never quite easy to find someone who can exactly feel the same way that you do, even though inherently they sort of do feel the same way that you do because we all feel isolated. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess, especially being like at Northwestern, I think like, within like certain friend groups and like have certain friend circles but there are always those moments when you like do feel like so alone when there's like no one you can go to or when um you're in a you're like stuck in like any type of social gathering and you're just like oh wow I'm like alone Mm -hmm. I wrote this piece for rookie called alone in the crowd and how like you spend time with people you're in a group of people and yet you just feel like this constant sense of isolation Mm -hmm. and like, n- not even, like, a, I don't belong, but, like, I'm not supposed to be here, too, mm-hmm. even. Yeah, and I think that's quite that's quite a paradox, considering how many um, APETA folks are on this campus. Like, yeah. I, uh, like, the outreach that I do is to one of, like, the largest minority demographics on campus. Mm-hmm. And yet there is this isolation and also, like, so much, like, siloed. There are so many silos in the community. Um which is just, yeah, it's a paradox for sure. Can you talk more about what you mean by like paradox, at least from what you've seen of the APETA community? Yeah, I think it's a paradox that like, for one, the fact that we feel isolated and yet there's so many people that we can talk to and that who are part of the community. But also I think it's really interesting how we, we take for granted our community. I really feel like we do. I feel like there are so many folks in the APEDA community, especially on Northwestern's campus, but also just like in the higher education period. Mm-hmm. And we are just kind of not, we're kind of lacking on um, community building or bonding um, between our communities, even though it's not a monolithic experience, but mm-hmm. it can be really difficult to, um, I guess, connect with non-Desi folks at times. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's really interesting is like my undergrad, I went to undergrad in North Central College. I was the only Desi American that I knew of who like graduated Mm -hmm. in my graduating class. Um, And I, one of my best friend in college, she was Filipino American. And I felt like this, such a strong connection with her. Mm -hmm. But I think about what our friendship would have looked like if we both went to Northwestern. LOL. (laughs) which is to say you know maybe it wouldn't have existed because there were not that many apita folks at north central all of us who did identify as apita just like we're drawn to each other we supported Mm -hmm. one another and we we tried to get rid of that isolation and that loneliness Mm -hmm. and i think here it's like we feel isolated and loneliness when like maybe perhaps we don't have to or there's a way to ease that pain Mm -hmm. we're not taking advantage of it I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, I, I'm a graduate uh, student here and I haven't Mm -hmm. been here as long as you have. Like, what Mm -hmm. are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think this relates back to like how I was feeling as like a Chinese American, because I think like one of the first orgs that I like proactively tried to join was the Chinese Student Association. 
and I went to one of their um, quotation marks recruitment events um, for I think it was like unlimited dumpling night something like mm. that and I went and I was like oh no this is not it like I was talking to people and I was like like maybe it was just my immediate sense that like I didn't really feel like I belonged in this space um and it wasn't like anyone was like saying something or doing something that was like purposefully trying to like isolate me like we were all just like talking as like new students as like new students holding this identity on Northwestern but I just felt so like alone like there was no way I could like possibly bond with these people over like any time span and I left and I like never looked into joining CSA again Mm. um I think for a lot of people like they do find community and family and a sense of support in CSA but I think for like many other individuals like in a way I feel like people who fall in between the silos Mm. of a different like a PETA demographic like maybe people would just like find more solidarity but I think people here just tend to group up Mm -hmm. thank Um, you for sharing that being so honest I definitely think there's this thing called identity purgatory where it's like you're caught in between two different communities or three or just like many communities and Mm -hmm. yeah not even it's not even a question of like I am siloed but it's like I'm caught in between two silos and I can't fit into either quite well Mm -hmm. it's like a mismatch yeah um okay so I think we're out of time but which I feel like we were just getting started thank you so much Chloe and Saeed for being here and participating in this conversation with me thank you thank you both so much for sharing Keep an ear out for the next APIDA Heritage Month episode. It They will be released every Monday of May. I will talk to you all later. Thank you for listening to us on Scripted Stories. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Support for this podcast is provided by Joe Scaletti, Emma Salem, Sydney Hastings-Smith, Saeed Resco, Alex Mana, Austin Gardner, Rafael Contreras, Juliet Sparza with support from Vishnu Venagopal, Linda Luck, and Aaron Golding. Subscribe to hear more from us.